Transmitting from the lovely little city of Taylor, Texas, you are listening to Plow and Hose, a show dedicated to the joys and challenges of organic backyard gardening in Central Texas. I am your host, Julie Rydell. Welcome to the show. Well, hello, plant people. Welcome back, gardening friends. Thank you for joining me today in my backyard for another plow and hose radio and podcast thanks to the rain and the overcast days that we've been having here in taylor and all over central texas july has been so wonderful and really pleasant at least i think so at least so far it's been that way And my garden is really responding to the rainy, cooler temperatures that we've been having so far in July. My tomatoes and peppers are being super productive. I mean, just this morning I was out in the garden. I filled a gallon container just full of nothing but shishito peppers. And I have so many tomatoes that I have been really busy blanching and peeling tomatoes so that I can make my favorite pasta sauce. I've got my bubblegum pink crepe myrtles. Um, They have started blooming and they were right on time. My pink ones always bloom around the 4th of July and they're really pretty right now. Also, since getting all this rain, my passion flower vines have completely taken off and they're all over the place and I have so many blossoms right now. I can smell them when I'm out in the garden. You know, individually they have like a subtle sweet fragrance, but there are so, so many of them that the fragrance is much more noticeable because there's so many of them right now. And it's really lovely. I love being out in the garden and just kind of catching that whiff of, of the passion flowers while I'm out there. And, you know, the vine itself is really amazing. Uh, it, they were really nice last year. And, well, they're always really pretty every year. But since we had our awful freeze back in February, I was pretty worried that they weren't going to come back. But uh, there's no reason for me to worry because they are looking really, really good and just covered in vibrant purple blossoms. The other morning, I um, when I was out in the garden, I noticed maybe like a dozen or so orange butterflies visiting them, uh, visiting the flowers. Um... I didn't really get a close-up look at them, but um, I feel pretty confident that they are Gulf fritillary butterflies. And, of course, that would make sense because passionflower vines are the host plant for Gulf fritillaries. These butterflies will sip nectar from lots of different kinds of flowers, but the females lay tiny yellow eggs exclusively on passionflower leaves and they won't lay them on any other plants. 
and there is some chemical or compound in passion flowers that make caterpillars poisonous to predators after the caterpillars eat the leaves. Another thing about gulf fritillary caterpillars, they're kind of freaky looking. They have bright orange bodies, but then they have these shiny black spikes on their backs and their sides, and they look real scary. They look like a medieval torture device or or something. I am not really sure um, <laughs> really how to describe them. So between being poisonous and spiky, lots of these caterpillars survive to become butterflies because everything avoids them. So it's no wonder that they are one of the most common butterflies in Texas. And in spite of looking all spiky and scary, the spines on those caterpillars, um, they're not poisonous to people. And if you touch one of them, it, it won't sting or, or burn like some caterpillars um, are, are poisonous to the touch. So don't worry about um, them being in your garden. Now, they are voracious eaters and they will eat tons and tons of passionflower leaves and they can strip down um, a plant really quickly but passionflowers are very hardy and they will come back every year and even if you have a small plant chances are it'll be fine and it'll come back even stronger the next year another thing i think that's kind of interesting about the gulf fruit um, fritillaries they go from like being freaky spiky dangerous looking orange and black caterpillars and then they evolve into they move on to the pupa stage that's where they build the the chrysalis and it's really boring they build these ugly brown chrysalises and they look just like curled up dead dry leaves but um, after they make it through that stage they come out to be um, that really pretty orange butterfly there are several kinds of passionflower vines that do well in central texas i have two i have the purple one that one is passiflora incarnata and then i have a white one that's called passiflora carulia they both have really super cool flowers and they're so unusual looking. The purple one gets to be maybe three, three and a half, four inches wide in diameter. They have, um, both of, both of them have a single row of petals, but then there's this frilly, frizzy layer of stripy filament on top. And then in the center are the reproductive parts. So there's three stigmas and five anthers. And, you know, usually the center of the plant where all the reproductive parts are, they face up. So it's really easy for pollinators to get in there and um, sip nectar and collect pollen. And, but on the passion flower, um, 
they face down instead of facing up and that's really unusual too. Passion flowers, they don't look like any other flowers that I've ever seen. They are just really, really cool. And you know, while I was um, thinking about passion flower, I started to kind of wonder about the name. I mean, passion flower, you know, what is so passionate about them? I mean, it's not like you give them to people, like you give your sweetheart passion flower on Valentine's Day or anything. Um, they really aren't suitable as a cut flower because the flowers only last one day. So I went ahead and started doing a little research and that's when I learned about the legend of the passion flower. You know, years and years ago, some Jesuit priest thought the flower kind of looked like Jesus's crown of thorns and he came up with an explanation for pretty much all the parts of the flower you know the three stigma represented the three nails in the cross and the ten petals stood for the ten faithful apostles and on and on and on so the passion part of the passion flower refers to the passion of Christ the story of Jesus's suffering and death not very uplifting for a flower but whatever I thought I thought that was um, an interesting story so wanted to share that with you now the white variety the passiflora um, carolia it has white petals with white and blue striped filament. This variety has a slightly smaller flower than the purple one. And I learned that this white one is sometimes called blue passion flower, which makes no sense to me at all, since it's like 90% white. And I don't know who who named that but it must have been opposite day when they named it if i was in charge of naming that plant i wouldn't mess around i would just call it white passion flower <laughs> some other things about growing passion flowers um, this plant may take a year or so to get established. So if you put in a small quart-sized plant, it may be a while before you see a lot of growth or any blossoms. Like most perennial plants, passion flowers will focus on growing a nice root system the first year, but just be patient. Once it realizes that it's happy exactly where you planted it, it's gonna take off and they don't mess around. Passion flower vines can spread up to 25 feet long. So wherever you plant it, be sure to keep that in consideration. The vines spread by tendrils and they can quickly cover a tree and grab onto any neighboring plants or structures. We have ours along um, some fences and it really does take over every year. And we have this poor mountain laurel that is near the fence and that passion uh, vine, it always creeps over and it latches on to the mountain laurel. 
and man, that passion vine is able to crawl over the top of that mountain laurel tree. And it's really trying to make its way over to my raised beds. And we have had so much rain here in Taylor and Central Texas this year that I'm sure I'm going to have a passion flower jungle <laughs> before too long. The purple variety, the Passiflora incarnata, is a Texas native plant and it puts out edible egg-shaped fruits. On our plants, I've only ever noticed a few fruits over the years and I've never been able to actually try um, one from any of my plants, either like a critter got them or I forgot about them and they rotted or they fell off the vine or something. <laughs> but um, last year I, I was finally able to try one from somebody else's plant and it was all right. Um, it was pretty tart and sour and it had a whole lot of hard seeds. I was kind of surrounded by dry spongy pulp. Now the passion fruits that we are probably most familiar with are a completely different variety. I mean, they're still passion flowers, but um, it's, a, it's a different variety. And our native Texas variety is supposed to be sweet and tart and very similar in flavor to the more tropical passion fruits that are like available at grocery stores. All passion fruit takes a long time to develop and ripen. The flowers bloom from June to September, and then any fruit will develop between July and October. And when they are ready, they will turn a yellowish orange color, and they look a whole lot like an apricot. When they're ripe, you can just open them up, scoop out some of that pulpy middle, and you can you can eat the seeds you can crunch on them um, if you want or just spit them out i did just take a quick walk out to the back fence to look for some fruit but i didn't see any but i did get a nice whiff of the blossoms um, the scent is sweet and pretty but it's not especially distinct it kind of has like a light grapey scent similar to like wisteria and mountain laurel, but it's not as bold. It's not nearly as fragrant as um, mountain laurel. So I don't know. I guess if you look as amazing at, and beautiful as a passion flower, you know, having an incredible fragrance would just be really unfair to all the other flowers out there right anyway um passion flower is really popular with um herbalists and people that practice natural um, plant-based medicine um herbalists will use all the parts of the passion flower to make a various herbal preparations um for ailments like insomnia and anxiety. Now, my friend Lauren, 
She is an herbalist who owns a little company called Terre Noir, and she lives here in Taylor. The past few years, I've um, I've shared some of my passion flower vine with her so that she can make passion flower tincture, which has been used as an herbal remedy um, for its calming properties. So, like I said, a lot of folks use it for anxiety and insomnia, and Lauren and I chat all the time, but usually in like late spring, early summer, she'll send me a note and ask me how the passion flower vine is looking. And when it starts to have a lot of new blossoms, I'll go out in the morning and I'll fill a gallon Ziploc bag just full of vines and stems. And of course the flowers, a lot of flowers. I just cram it all full until it like looks like a big and green purple plastic throw pillow I really cram it full but anyway she told me that um, she takes what I give her and then she makes a tincture from it which a tincture is just basically infusing herbs in a neutral alcohol like vodka or Everclear the alcohol draws out the phytonutrients um, out of the plant material and after she lets it soak and marinate for however long it takes she strains it all out and then she'll bottle it up and she puts it in these um cute little um cute little bottles Uh, it has like a little dropper and then of course it has the instructions on on how to use it i want to say that she also dries some of the fresh plant material and uses it in a dry tea blend i'll have to ask her about that but you know I really just need to have her come on the show and just tell us all about being an herbalist. I think it'll be really fun. She's really super sweet and so knowledgeable about growing and collecting herbs and making all kinds of healing formulas from plants. Just this past weekend, or actually this weekend, uh, she started selling at the Taylor's um, farmer's market that sets up on Saturdays from 10 to 2 at Heritage Square. So you should go find her one Saturday and check out all of her products and pick up some cool stuff like some tinctures or salve or maybe some tea. You are listening to Plow and Hose on KVSR Black Sparrow Radio. If you are enjoying my show, I hope you will go over to www.blacksparrowmusicparlor.com and check out the station and learn all about the great shows and music all coming out of our little radio station broadcasting from Taylor, Texas. You know, while you're out on the internet, be sure to stop by the Plow and Hose Facebook page and like and share it with your gardening friends or, you know, head over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows and subscribe to the Plow and Hose podcast. If you like the flexibility of being able to play, pause and rewind my show whenever you want, download some episodes and be sure to leave a review. It's super quick. Just click on the stars, type up a sentence or two about what you like about the show, and then click submit. Easy. It's going to help. It really will. It will really help others find the show. And then also downloading those Plow and Hose episodes helps me um, get show statistics. 
If you live in the Taylor area, check out the Taylor, Texas Backyard Gardeners Facebook group. We are a nice little group made up of local folks who love all types of plants. If you are interested in growing things in Central Texas, it's a nice place to meet folks and find out what's going on in their backyards. I am always amazed by the wonderful gardens and the creative solutions that people come up with. It really is a diverse um, group that we have. And we have everyone from beginners to certified master gardeners that are on the page. And it really is such a joy to see pictures of other people's plants and interact with other plant people. Okay, I've got another little story for you. I work at the hospital here in town, and one day last week, one of the nurses in the emergency department asked if I could babysit her butterflies. And she knows I, wor I have this show and that I'm really into plants and nature. And, of course, I said that I, I would definitely help her out. I'd be so willing to babysit her butterflies. Now, my friend is really into butterflies, and she recently decided to start getting really active and focusing on the life cycle of monarch butterflies. I don't know really what the word is for what she's doing, but hatching butterfly eggs? I don't know. Um... I do know that she has spent oh, all kinds of time researching and nurturing monarch butterflies from eggs to caterpillars to adult butterflies. And so anyway, my friend was going out of town for the 4th of July and she had three monarch caterpillars that had formed chrysalises and they were going to be emerging sometime while she was on vacation. So I got the honor of bringing home the chrysalises and waiting for them to emerge from their little jade green little incubator chrysalises. So the first one came out on the 5th of July and then the other two came out on the 6th and the 7th. Now, she had given me this big tent thing. It was like two, three, two feet by, I don't know, probably three feet tall. And it was like this white mesh tent. And it had like a zipper on one side and then a clear viewing panel on the opposite side. So you could really get a good look and check on the progress of the um, developing chrysalises. Now, here's how I understand the process to work. Um, so my friend had milkweed growing in pots out in her yard, and she would just kind of monitor them and watch her monarchs to come visit her plants. And milkweed is the host plant for monarch butterflies. So they only lay their eggs on milkweed plants. And caterpillars exclusively eat milkweed leaves. So once she spotted monarchs visiting her plants, she'd check on the plants for eggs, and then when she saw the little eggs, she'd move the plant into the observation tent. 
as the eggs developed and grew into caterpillars, um, they were safely zipped up in that tent. And it only takes about a month for monarch butterflies to develop from egg to caterpillar to chrysalis to butterflies. So when the caterpillars are ready to um, build a chrysalis and transform, they crawled up the side of the tent and started to form, build a little chrysalis at the top of the tent. And chrysalises need to hang so they can form properly. Now, these monarch chrysalises you've never seen one they are just so beautiful they are like a soft jade green color just a nice light green color but if you look closely at them they have these tiny gold metallic dots on them and to me they look like little green lanterns they're they are really really pretty and they stay that light green until right up until they are ready to emerge. And the chrysalises will start to fade and they kind of get translucent. But they're going to look kind of black because, you know, they have the butterfly, the black and white monarch in there all folded up. So when it starts to, um, to fade and kind of turn black, that's when you know they're going to be ready to come out of their chrysalis really really soon so once i uh got this tent home i <laughs> drove around town with chrysalis in my car um but when i got home i put a lantana plant inside the tent so the uh, newborn butterflies would have a nice source of natural nectar right away male monarch butterflies <laughs> Um, you can tell the males from the females because the males have two black oval spots on their wings. There's one on each wing. And the females don't have them. So of the three that um, emerged here at our house, um, we had two boys and one girl. And I have to say that it was a really cool experience. I, you know, I'd, we'd go out and check on them every day, every morning and see what would happen. And my two younger kids thought it was just like so neat to just be able to see them emerge. And um, it was a really cool experience. Now, I am sure y'all are aware of the concerning decline in bees and also monarch butterflies. I mean, been on the news pretty regularly for the past decade it is pretty concerning um, you know that dramatic decrease in pollinators because it has a pretty big global implication on food production and agriculture but there are some things that we can do to help the pollinators without setting up a beehive or writing letters to Washington um, those are awesome things to do, but if you want to do something immediate in your backyard, you can do really, really soon. You can add bee and butterfly friendly plants to your garden. You know, all of us 
here listening today. We're all plant people anyway. We're flower people, vegetable people, tree people, nature people. There's even some of us that prefer plants to people. But anyway, if we are all going to be gardening, we might as well put some plants in to help our pollinators. So maybe the first thing to do is decide what type of pollinator you want to attract. And you also have to think about the entire life cycle of the pollinator. You know, butterflies and moths, they don't start out as little tiny baby butterflies. Of course, they are first eggs and then they're caterpillars and then adult butterflies. So when you are wanting to attract the butterflies, keep in mind that you also want to attract and sustain all stages of their development. I think that's something that people kind of forget about. We never really notice the eggs, but we sure do get upset when caterpillars um, are devouring our plants. Caterpillars are just doing what they do. And you know, one of the all-time best-selling books is The Very Hungry Caterpillar. So it's not like we haven't known since we were little kids that caterpillars like to eat a lot. So if you are having issues with caterpillar damage on, um, on plants, you know, maybe instead of reaching for an insecticidal spray, take a little time to figure out what is eating your plant and decide if it's a big deal or not. Um, for me, cabbage loopers, those little green kind of inchworm caterpillars, when they get on my brassica plants like cabbage, broccoli, and kale, to me, that's more of a big deal since I want to eat those vegetables. Caterpillars, on the other hand, that are eating the passionflower vines, not a big deal to me. Those vines just grow and grow, and there are plenty of plants. So I don't mind if the caterpillars um, have, you know, chow down on, on that. You know, another thing about insecticides in your garden, um, even the organic ones, you know, insecticide, pesticide, they kill, uh, they kill the critters. Um, and of course, there's ones that are appropriate for um, organic gardening, but insecticides really often do kill the good bugs too. So if you're trying to encourage butterflies and bees, make sure you aren't doing more harm. Um, you know, like maybe if you're treating beetles or something on other plants, just make sure that um, you know what kind of plants that you have and what kind of pollinators you're trying to attract and make sure that you don't accidentally kill them all while you're trying to, to deal with another issue. But really, it's going to take some time to learn um, about insects. And really, one of the best ways um, to learn is just by visiting your garden every day and, and just observing what's going on. And you're by doing that, you're going to learn so much. So once you know what you're wanting to attract, say you are really into swallowtails or you're really into um, 
monarch butterflies or painted ladies, whatever, then you can go ahead and plant specific plants just for them, like passionflower vines, um, those cute little gulf fritillaries, you can plant those for them, um, and you can plant milkweed for the monarchs. And again, for butterflies, you're going to want host and nectar plants. Again, host plants are where butterflies lay their eggs. When the eggs hatch, the larvae will nibble on the host plant, and as they grow, they live right there on the host plants. If they survive and they can avoid being eaten by birds or other critters, then they will form a chrysalis or a cocoon. You know, if they're a moth, they'll form a cocoon um, on the host plant. Once they emerge as butterflies or moths, they will fly off and start looking for nectar plants so they can survive and start the whole cycle uh, over again. There is a ton of really great information on butterflies out on the internet. Um, if you're wanting Central Texas specific information, I'd like to recommend wildflower.org. This is the Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center's website, and it's dedicated to native Texas plants. TexasButterflyRanch.com, I, I believe they're based out of San Antonio. Um, their website is another wonderful resource for information on pollinators and pollinator plants. Most pollinators will try to eat from a variety of flowers to get their nectar, but some species really only prefer certain plants because of their shape or color or their scent. Now, generally speaking, pollinators prefer the native variety of a plant over the improved variety of a plant. Improved varieties are those plants that have been intentionally cultivated for a specific reason. So usually like for their flower color or um, fruit production. Native varieties are those that are true to their wild form. It takes a long time for species to adapt, so they tend to gravitate towards the natives. So for example, if you are really wanting to attract butterflies, then go for native lantana over the cultivated varieties. The butterflies and the bees are going to be much more interested in the nectar from the native lantana. But you know, there's absolutely nothing wrong with having both varieties in your garden. You know, native lantana kind of grows kind of scraggly and it really only comes in orange. So find a place in your garden for the natives. You can always add the improved varieties that you like um, and put those in the garden for you to enjoy. So some for the butterflies, some for you. You could also grow extra host plants. I mean, for example, swallowtail butterfly caterpillars devour fennel plants. They love them so much. So have multiple fennel plants in your garden. Some for you, some for them. Keep them in different spots in the garden and dedicate the one, uh, dedicate one for the caterpillars and then one for you. And then if you find a caterpillar on your plant, you can just relocate it over to their plant. 
Ultimately, if you want pollinators to stick around, you need both host and nectar plants. If you don't, they're going to fly off and find plants in somebody else's yard. So you'll want to have a nice variety of plants for your pollinators. If you want to help the monarchs, fall is the perfect time to plant some milkweed seeds. Milkweed absolutely thrives with neglect. And honestly, <laughs> I think if you plant milkweed and you try to nurture it and baby it and tell it how much that you want it to grow, somehow it knows and it won't cooperate and it'll just die. <laughs> you know, here in uh, Central Texas, we have a couple of native milkweed plants that do so well here in our soil in Central Texas. They really thrive. And monarchs really like green milkweed and antelope horn milkweed. So look for those seeds. Both types of the milkweed, they have pale green star-shaped flowers. The antelope horn flowers kind of cluster together and they form like a dome and they have narrow skinny leaves whereas the green milkweed um, has a slightly different flower shape it's not quite as domey and they have wider more round um, leaves the native milkweeds are they're actually hard to find as transplants it's not impossible to find um, milkweed seedlings but they're usually kind of expensive because they really don't like to grow um, in like seed starting mix. Um, they're really, really picky. Milkweeds develop um, a long, deep taproot and they absolutely do not like to have their roots disturbed. So they want to grow right where the seeds land. So they can be kind of challenging to transplant, even if you do find um, some transplants available at the, at the nurseries. But fall, don't worry about it, because fall is the best time to plant milkweed seeds because they need a certain amount of cooler temperatures in order to germinate. And this is called cold stratification. They need at least 30 days of cool temperatures to break dormancy. So placing the seeds out in the fall will give them plenty of plenty of opportunity for cold weather exposure. Because you know, when it comes to fall in Central Texas, anything goes. I mean, it could be 80 degrees on Thanksgiving, or it could be 40. You just never know from one year to the next. So if you strive to scatter your milkweed seed in the fall, they will have plenty of time to rake dormancy by springtime. And they can be finicky to get started, but once native milkweed plants um, get going, they'll come back year after year. They're perennial plants. I gotta say that I have really enjoyed talking about butterflies this week. So I definitely want to continue the discussion um, 
about nectar and host plants that you can add to your gardens for the pollinators. And July is a really great time to do this because there's not a whole lot that we can plant in the garden right now. So that's my plan for next week's show. So more butterfly and pollinator friendly plants. Thank you guys for joining me again. I hope y'all have a great week and we'll catch you next time. Production assistance provided by KBSR, Black Sparrow Radio. Original music created by Alex Cuervo. Discover more of his music at alexcuervo.tv. If you love plants and gardening in Central Texas, be sure to click the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts and never miss seasonal information on Plow and Hose. Plow and Hose is written and recorded at my home in Taylor, Texas. Thank you.